Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh yeah, yeah. Because Matt played it in his DJ set in Bristol, like third song in, and uh, yeah, you know when you hear a song, obviously that's kind of out of sync of the tour you're on. Obviously, right. when you're on tours like this, it's kind of punk rock mm-hmm. through and through. So then the minute you get something outside of that box, you're like, oh, I just want to go down this rabbit hole now. Right, right. So right. we've just been jamming fucking glam and hair metal all the way nice, down nice, the day. Nice. So what are you doing later on? Obviously, this will be going out after the show, so there's oh, no, yeah. no chance of spoiling the surprise. Uh, doing What are we doing later? Well, what, you mean like after the show? With, getting No, drunk with Hot and, for Teacher. Uh, What's the plan? Well, <laughs> I ultimately, I don't know. Uh, Casey, uh, Flogging Molly's tour manager, is an old friend of mine. He's a, a little younger than I am, but I knew him when he was pretty young as a kid in, in a Santa Barbara lad. That's of, where you grew up as well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, for some reason, he got it in his mind. I mean, I guess he was listening to a lot of Van Halen. I was listening to Van Halen as a kid. I was listening to Van Halen when, you know, 40 years ago when they first showed up. But um, I was reading you're 52 years of age. Is I'm that 52 right? years old. Did yeah. you look insane for your age? <laughs> what, insanely bad? Thanks. No, insanely <laughs> great. You uh, age like a fine wine. It's uh, a lifetime of, of misadventure. I, I've certainly not done anything. I, I don't exercise. I don't eat right. I don't look after myself you know a little smoking a little drinking you know i think the california sunshine goes a long way doesn't it <laughs> i guess so um 
But Sorry, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we're we're gonna. He wants me to jump up on guitar with uh, the Flogging Molly fellows and run through Hot for Teacher by Van Halen. So it's funny. I've never actually played it before. Uh, I did look at a, a brief tutorial of the intro guitar part a couple times on YouTube. So it'll be a bit of a crapshoot, but you know, I had a look at it. I kind of see what the what the what the deal is. And you know, I know with, the with song. That song. It was all over the drums, MTV. man. The drums oh, yeah. and that. Drums are ferocious. Yeah. Well, the Van Halen brothers are ferocious, yeah. and you know they came up, uh, uh, you know, influenced by their dad, who played big band and swing music, and I think that influenced a lot of their earlier output, having such a a hot swing beat in a rock context. And There's almost like a classical element in there as well, isn't there? With sure. some of the guitar licks and oh, stuff. Oh yeah, they were such well. It's I mean, interesting. So how old were you when they when they exploded? You were what, like 12, 14, 15, 12? Yeah, like 78. I, I was born in 66, so I was like 11 or 12 when that first album came out. It's funny. I used to, as a kid, look at whatever you know rock magazines would be in the stores and stuff and just be in awe of the pictures of Jimmy Page with his, you know, dragon print, you know, silk jumpsuit and his double necks and all that stuff. And I remember in one of those magazines, it was either like Cream or something and in the very back of the magazine there was this little article on this new band and it was van halen i hadn't heard anything i don't think most people had and it was a photo of them all just sort of sit, laying on a bed together just you know with their backs against the backrest. and you know i still remember my initial reaction was that uh, they look a bit greasy and and kind of you know because you know, all the bands of that time were so like hair you know and it's funny because van halen was such a a hair band and, and a colorful band but my first impression was oh who's this dirty lot looking so seedy all i guess guns and roses had that exact same thing going didn't they a little later on like a decade later it was that kind of street urchin yeah barrel. yeah yeah well it's it's crazy i you know i came in on rock uh mostly 60s and 70s hard rock and stuff so i had already been messing around and and had a bit of a you know an established approach to playing before the shred movement came along in the 80s but it was it was exciting to a degree it just was that for the most part all the attention paid on blistering licks seemed to be to the detriment of everything else bass drums and songs and and bands just became just a boring backdrop for the inevitable histrionic guitar solo that would just rip your head off and though that had a certain novelty and some of the guys had some character to their playing by and large it just felt exhausting and and unfulfilling and and i missed the days of of deep purple and black sabbath queen you know early van halen uh, Led so they, they were the groups for you were you always a bassist first or were you a guitarist first well or it's both, hard to or? say because i have an older brother who is a guitar teacher and he's only two and a half years older than me but he was a huge influence on me and the reason i started playing bass was because my older brother Mike was a guitar player. Now, a lot of people know my younger brother Chris. Is there three of you in There's total? There's three of us in total, not counting our stepbrother Steve. But right. we never actually lived with Steve, so... I mean, he is family, but, you know, there's the core three Shiflet brothers. And, and uh, you know, so Mike started on guitar. I naturally, unofficially, messed around on his guitars and played his guitars, watched his moves, studied his moves, and picked up licks and... And stuff but when it came time for proper lessons my mom said what's gonna be in my mind I always sort of figured I would either be a lead guitarist or a drummer 
But the day came, she just sort of hit me with the question, we're going to sign you up for lessons. So what's it going to be? And I just kind of, in a panic, I said bass. And it, it wasn't that I had some drive for bass or an affinity for bass. I just knew that guitar looked daunting and scary. My older brother was already on it. So I figured if I pick another instrument, that'll get us one step closer to a band. So I picked bass. But the reality is it's interesting. My bass teacher wasn't even a bass player. He was a guitar player. So your bass style is so unique and incredible and it's been such a pleasure watching you play every night and I feel like there's not that many bassists because I'm not a musician myself so I'm not clued up as to kind of the technicalities and you know the skill set I can admire talent but I'm not necessarily clued up to what people are doing but watching you is very much I think in my kind of favorite live bass experience thanks when it thanks. comes to just watching someone own their instrument thanks well you know what I do in this band is a confluence of so many different things. It's funny because yes, I'm a bass player and yes, I love what I refer to as essence bass, which is very finger style and very in the pocket. But what I do in this band is a mixture of a lot of things. I mean, yes, I play bass and I play guitar and, and my guitar style owes a lot to the, to the 70s era hotshots like Richie Blackmore, Uli John Roth, Michael Schenker, Van Halen, and I'll even throw in Randy Rhodes because he was a huge influence on me, and I consider him more of a 70s holdover than an 80s. You know, he was sort of set the template for a lot of 80s guys. So my approach to guitar has always had a bit of an aggressive hot shot kind of thing. And it's funny, when I play bass in a band, I traditionally fall into like a Geezer Butler, John Paul Jones, or even Paul McCartney sort of mold, which isn't what I do in this band. Yeah. But essentially the template for what face-to-face -face bass playing is was already established by my predecessor, Matt Riddle, who's an excellent bass player, a very aggressive, uh, busy, but melodic in the pocket. He kind of ticked all the boxes in a way. And uh, I think, you know, of course I loved Steve Harris when I first came upon uh, Iron Maiden when I discovered them uh, when Killers came out in 81. I wound up seeing them live in 82. It was Bruce Dickinson's first tour with them. They still had Clive Burr on drums, which was excellent. I mean, though, you know, I saw Maiden recently. A better and they drummer, still but still kill. Oh yeah, I like seventy it. years old. I know, I know, I know. The energy of a teenager, like. But so there was something already established to how the bass in this band would be approached in conjunction to like Trevor's style of songwriting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So did you was, join on album four? No, album three. three. I'm on. I'm on uh, the self-titled album. Yeah, and I'm even on the the EP that came out uh, maybe just a little before Econo uh, Live which was us taking the third album out on tour pre prior to recording because the idea was to bust the tunes into shape live, which always gives them a different, you know, makes you play them a different way than if you're just in a rehearsal room to actually get that litmus test of live experience with the material, then cut the record. Yeah. So, um, so that's really, it's a confluence of things. Um, and over time, I've certainly, you know, become real aggressive with the more the live end of things and i'll throw a hot lick in here and there that isn't necessarily on the record uh much to trevor's chagrin <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun for me and i love it and i you know I, I still hunker down onto the material where it needs to be but there's the reality is just the bass position in this band is demanding as fuck pardon me i custom you can say whatever you want mate Excellent. it's all good poop um so yeah it's like it's an aggressive, exhausting thing. I, I do, I think, put an undercurrent of what I consider essence bass. I'm not rattling a string. I'm, uh, I'm creating like, you know, uh, 
there's a deeper throb, a deeper feel, even if it seems like I'm just hugging a note. I like to think that I'm interjecting the feel as well, but just the parts themselves are, there's a, you know, a lot of stuff in, in the, in the, just the bona fide tunes. That's, you know, it's interesting the way I approach moving from part to part. Yes. I might do a signature riff or something and then I'll hug a note. I'll hug the, the, the note, but, you know, it's the Paul McCartney in me that rather than just going from da to da, I'll go da, 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 da. You know what I mean? I'll throw a little melodic uh, line to get to the next part. And to me, that's a very Paul kind of thing to do. They're very melodic songs. And it's not often that I think you hear punk rock done so powerfully and melodically at once. Right. I think that makes Face to Face quite a unique band. Well, I, I'd like to agree. You know, it's funny. The... The era that this band springs from, which a lot of people are well aware, is you know largely considered like '90s punk rock or yeah. or whatever. But you know my tastes in rock and punk and all this stuff goes back a lot earlier than that. My favorite punk bands are, for the most part, '70s British punk bands. Okay, and so I, when, when I did punk come in to... for you at the same time as the '60s and '70s hard rock? Yes and no. I was listen. And... I've got a picture of my record collection from '74. You see. The Beatles, you see David Bowie, you see some Grand Funk Railroad, the Stones. You just see these things in there. You know, we didn't, there was no real beginning. We've always been listening to music. You know, periodically I'll come across someone like, yeah, I was uh, studying to be an architect. And then I discovered rock out of college, but not the Shiflet Boys. This was an obsession from as far back as as we can remember. Was that from your parents? Were they musical? Were they They had their musical tastes. My dad was mostly blues and jazz. My mom was kind of the California sound. And I love their tastes. I listen to their tastes even still to this day. But my older brother, Mike, was really the the forerunner of what was our music, which tended to be more uh, late 60s and 70s hard rock. And then I kind of ran with a little bit more of the heavy metal and you know, my little bro got into some of the glam rock, but we all loved each other's stuff too. We we all covered part of the spectrum and we all dug each other's music, even if we were all focusing on something specifically from it. But I still remember my, you know, even though of course there's proto-punk and there's the, the, the medicine ball of music gets lobbed back and forth generationally. You know, it's like those, those early 60s Stones and Beatles and some of the garage rock bands of the 60s influenced some of the American bands like MC5 and the Stooges and and even a early uh, Ramones and stuff, which then lobbed the medicine ball back over here and created that, you know, uh, helped inspire some of the, the, the British bands, your Pistols, your Clash, your Jam and all that stuff. Uh, and then, which of course, you know, it just keeps then lobbing back, back and forth and, yeah, and reconstituting. But I still it's always remember been this international kind of transatlantic yeah, yeah, love affair yeah, isn't it, between yeah. the UK and America. Right. And, and each iteration uh spawns a new haircut or pair of trousers that you know seems appropriate to wear with it and, and sort of pushes the thing forward i actually have a co- an issue of rolling stone magazine from like 1968 i think with uh, mick jagger on the cover it was when it was a uh fold in half it was a large parchment paper kind of almost diy feeling rag more than the glossy yeah, yeah. pro thing it is now and and one of the bands in there is actually is referred to as a punk rock band so it's interesting people are always like where you know looking for ground zero for some of the things like the terminology and stuff but most things have to percolate for quite a while before they get their yep. 
they're chrysalis, their moment where the name meets the look meets the sound, which was probably 76 London with all the, the punk bands that respond out of there. That became for me, at least boom, that's punk rock. And, and I still remember my uh, older brother, Mike and I, we were still living in Maryland. It was 1977. And uh, we were, wa well, we weren't watching the news, but my dad was watching the news and, you know, it was back when this burgeoning new movement was enough of a threat and enough of a cultural scare that like it, Elvis in the 50s, right, that, similar. It, that it merited news coverage. You yeah. know, these people, what are they doing? Sticking safety pins through their clothes and their faces and they're gobbing on each other and all that crap. Uh, but one of the things that stuck with me was in the little inbox, they had a picture of Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon, you know, but they had airbrushed flames all around him so <laughs> it just looked you know dangerous and menacing and and i remember when that came on i i looked over at my brother mike and he looked back at me and we were both like uh what's this you know this i'm seems, having some of that yeah this seems pretty interesting so it was really i say i or we but it was my once again my older brother mike that managed somehow to get his hands on that sex pistols record so that turned us on it was 77 we we got into some of the first well what we considered first wave of of british punk and we hadn't even discovered uh, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. It's interesting. We were too, I think, too young to join sides, to take sides in a culture war. We were still little kids. and With the know, whole anti-long hair, Right, anti right, right. Out with the old, in with the new. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I wasn't even aware of all the stuff that I would eventually grow to love and, and have be a part of my life. Once we moved in late 77 back to California, where then I went through, you know, the rest of elementary school, junior high, high school, and 10 years of fucking off with my life. Uh, <laughs> my brother, Mike, once again, always the forerunner of, of discovery with, with, with the brothers. He checked out of the local library when you could check out records. He checked out a copy of Black Sabbath's Paranoid, brought it home, and for me, that was a life changer. I must have been about 12 or so. And just hearing that record, I wasn't going to... Uh, not Disown go that. down that road to me i mean maybe guys who had been listening to it for seven or eight years were already over it and and you know fashion mongers that always want to be trendy or part of something new they could dismiss it but to me music is always it's first and always will be an emotional medium before it's a fashion or a political medium it's an emotional medium you can articulate all you want where you belong who you want to sit with but when a song gets into your head and goes right to your 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 heart and your your mind uh, that relationship is forged instantaneously. It sort of s circumvents, it bypasses all logical and critical thinking. So, you know, then it just becomes a sociology experiment, an in and out group thing like, well, I love this band, but if I admit it to my mates, then they're going to, you know, kick me out of the, the gang and I don't want to do that, which is rough business when you're 15, but I'm well, it's, 52. It's kind of everything, isn't it? Right, then? it is. It it's is. like you're either you, in or you're out. Right, who you want to fit in with. So, um. I heard Sabbath and my life just was forever changed. And that doesn't, you know, I've never been a guy to disavow things to take on new things. I still love that the music of, that I've always loved. And, you know, it's just, I add more to it than that. You know, just keep letting new things be a part of it. And it all informs the stuff I write. I'm almost schizophrenic and like, I, I rarely write the same style song twice in a row. I have to kind of almost try to do that or else it'll just be all over the map. I just figure over the long enough period of time, I just simply get, here's a handful of folk songs and here's some punk songs and here's some, you know, shred songs or whatever. Do you write very instinctively or are you a little bit more critical and self-aware and 
you know, I've been writing for so long. I think I've tried my hand at all of it. You know, yeah. sometimes music first, sometimes lyrics first. Uh, I do. Sometimes I'll have like just almost like a, a a random outpouring, a train of thought as I'm writing lyrics. And then I have to wonder what do they mean? You know, people are always, some people write very literal songs like Johnny went down to the supermarket and bought himself a pack of crisps or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's very easy narrative to follow. And yeah, yeah. sometimes my lyrics are a bit more vague and opaque than that. It's And so even I am not 100% sure what I mean. And I, you know, if it's a little too flowery, I might be a little embarrassed by it. But for the most part, even on, okay, I've recently uh, released only as a download album, um, a side project that I do called Viva Death. I was listening to that on the way down oh, here too. Cool. Ready Try- to go was the first song. Oh I yeah, heard. yeah, yeah. Very that specific record, very eighties yes, sounding. Yes, yes, yes. I was yes. trying to think of what it's, it. It's reminded almost a me new of. wave record done yeah. almost entirely on guitars. But there's some solos. But if you listen to the record, it was almost all made with one guitar, a custom shop Fender Stratocaster, and one bass, an American-made Fender Precision. Uh, which I've used on a few of the face-to-face records. I had to go to Boston to make it, so I couldn't bring a quiver of guitars to you know, indulge my fancy whims. We, we decided to make this record in a very different style to the earlier ones. This is the fourth Viva Death record. It's did called it, Illuminate. Did it start it off as now. a project with you and Chris, and then over the years it's become just yours? No, is it? it started out as a project with Trevor from Face to Face right. and I. We bought matching baritone guitars and just got real excited over our new toys built a band around it, never intending to make even a record. But our former manager, who was part owner of a record label, made the fatal mistake of saying, I'll fund a record. So that was his blowing it. But it started a project that, you know, I would have never probably done because I, you know, even I know that my my tastes and some of my more personal writing is a bit more esoteric and it's a harder sell. And Quite frankly, I'm not out to convince people to enjoy what I do. If you hear it and you dig it, great, get into it. But I'm not going to tap dance for your approval or affections. Not with that project anyway. Yeah, you know, that's for you. That's just for me. Yeah. I, you know, it's like, it, I hate to use the term artists, a bit you know, arrogant or whatever, but an artist it, without a benefactor buying your brushes and paints, you have to buy your own brushes and paints. And that's how I feel about Viva Death. I finance it and... You know, after that first album, of course, uh, they didn't know what to make of it when we turned that I'll thing bet. in. They were a left turn, right? Yeah. So, basically, uh, uh, Trevor, oddly enough, in- instigated the second album. He said, "Let's make a second one." And I said, "I will not ask those folks for money. They didn't want that first record. Forget it." And he was like, "I already got a budget." I was utterly surprised. And then I was also surprised that he didn't really seem as into the collaboration as as he was. So he strangely instigated a second record, but wasn't really uh, as prolific Hands on the on writing. Involved, yeah. We really half and half the first album. It was more of a collaboration. And I wrote all but one song on the second record. And then by the third record, I took over all duties. I played the drums. I played all the bass and everything. The first two albums were just baritone guitar because that was the impetus. We wanted to see, could we make records without bass or standard guitar using only this exotic-ish in instrument, the baritone guitar. It was just more of a artistic experiment. Can yeah, we yeah, get yeah. away with this? And, you know, some people thought not. I think we did, you know. I think, you know, I deliberately wrote the songs so that the parts would fill the spectrum. There would be a so-called bassy section, even though, you know, it's not down as low as a bass. The middle part, some lead parts. But though, here, okay, back to the point of how it started... I didn't want it to be a project, which it was. It was always a project. 
so I roped my little brother, and we eventually got Josh Freeze from Nine Inch Nails and yeah, Sting, yeah. and every band ever. Perfect Circle, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, He's you know, a busy Devo, dude. The Vandals. He is one of the busiest dudes, and an amazing talent. And considering the speed we were trying to, you know, travel, he for me as a musician and having to, you know, work quickly and on the fly and on a cheaply project, as well, right? I guess. Uh, yeah, he, I was bro rated. Yeah, yeah absolutely he comes in you know he'd come to my house i'd play my demos i would you know drum on my legs to articulate the parts and he's so fantastic he can nail it in one take in the studio and give you what you want in the character of the song in one take is that it's why phenomenal. he's so in demand and so yeah, widely yeah. used i'll bet 70 80 percent of what you hear on the radio is secretly him drumming one time years ago my, my wife was the scheduling coordinator for a studio in los angeles and he was there doing a uh, Wilson Phillips uh, project. I'm sure he doesn't mind me mentioning that now. But he, he was a little bit embarrassed and asked her not to tell me why he was there. <laughs> yes, <I laughs> but she promptly you. threw Amazing. him under the bus. He was there doing Wilson Phillips. <laughs> but I don't judge, man. You know, he's a professional. That's, the, that's what you do. But I felt real honored when uh, at one point he was, you know, here's a guy who's played on 700 plus records, probably a thousand by now. Um, he was asked in one, I don't know if it was drummer magazine or modern drummer i'm not sure uh to list his 10 favorite albums and one of my viva death records was one of them i was very honored oh, right but on. you know i kind of i cut him loose as well as i you know the songs have their structure but there's a freedom within that structure and i just kind of you know that's the beauty of, of of freeze is that he he does understand the character of what you're doing he doesn't just go in there and kind of blindly thrash it out even in perfect time he know he gets where are you going? So anyway, roped my brother into it. It looked like a band. It walked, it talked like a band, but it was never a band. It was always a project. So when it came time to do the third album, it was uh, just a case of, I felt guilty asking everyone to come and, and, and you know, give old man Shiflet a break and <laughs> dedicate your time. And, and there was always a part of me that wanted to kind of be a really bad Paul McCartney drummer on my record. You know, every uh, half-assed drummer wants to take a stab at it. And so that was the third album for me. Which is ironic because I love sloppy drumming. And then when I hear me doing it, I kind of cringe a little bit. But it's weird. I have friends that like that album the best because they, they, they like my shitty drumming. So, but <laughs> back to this. That. Right, right, right. Back to this fourth album. We decided, you know, by now my, my, the, my main partner in crime, Chad Blinman, who was recording engineer and mixer and co producer of a, of a lot of the face to face records. He was living in Boston, teaching at Berklee College of Music. And so I had to fly out there. I can only bring one bass and one guitar. But we had, you know, I had no money. So it was like, well, let's see what we could do. Well, he has a project on the sly called Real Space Noise, where he programs everything. And he is a drummer. You know, he used to drum for Das Ich and Icor and all these kind of gothy bands and stuff. And is goth a sort of a subgenre? Or a, a subculture I, that you identify with or enjoy? I do, but you know what? I, I, not with, you know, I think like a lot of things, what things become scarcely resembles what they started out as. Yeah. I love Susie and the Banshees and Bauhaus, but I don't think of that. I don't think they even relate to the kind of cliched version of what goth is. Not to offend anybody, but for my money, you know, the stuff from back then was a different animal. Same yeah. with hard rock or even heavy metal. It, I may, it, I'm sure it's just something that comes with age and passing time. You always prefer the first time you heard it yeah, yeah. in its earlier iterations and stuff. And I don't mean to be a dick about it. And I, and I would never profess that 
I loved my music any more than someone else loves theirs. That's a music being subjective. But you is, like what you like. As I like what I like, does. and yeah. you know, I'm not going to pretend otherwise to appear hip or current. I just yeah, can't yeah, yeah. do that, you know. So, but anyway, so for the for this latest record, um, uh, Chad uh, programmed all the drums, so it's all drum programming, which is funny because we joke that so many bands nowadays sample and trigger and then time compress and and move things about to that it scarcely resembles an authentically performed performance anyway we just skipped the middleman yeah technically <laughs> but you know he's he's an artist at his at his programming in my view and uh and it was just another th thing and, and and it won't be the same thing on the next record we're already talking about being a little bit more minimalist dark wave kind of thing and and uh the beauty of the project is that it doesn't owe anything to anyone even myself you know uh what started out as this is the baritone band we chucked that out of the window by the third record so you can go anywhere with it do and anything. that's the, the joy yeah. right that's the yeah. thrill i just consider it a, a free playpen corner for me i i get to you know i know i'm taking the long route to get back to this but hey that's that, the beauty of podcasts right right so it's back to like my lyrics i on the earlier stuff i i I kind of almost had an anti-commercial bent. So on the part of the song that would traditionally go to the big sing-along chorus, I would just go to a vamp and then off to another verse or something. But I think there's more what I would consider standard structures and commercial, uh, uh, not commercial, but, you know, catchy choruses or yeah, whatever, yeah, 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 as yeah. good as Viva Death's going to do them. Conventional. Right, right. Uh, on this latest album. And some of the guys that I've worked with, like Joe Gastwert, who's a, a legend in the mastering business you know he likes this one the, the best i've i've heard that from a lot of people and i think it's a it's a good listen and you know we once again uh showing my my age i i love the album experience and we've always made these records to be a can like just put it on let it play put your puffy headphones on smoke a joint whatever you like to do and just let it ride it's for, i know that the the album game isn't what it used to be but i do feel like headphone records now is the perfect time to be making those because probably 80% of people who are listening to music at any point are nowadays listening to them on their headphones because they're probably listening on their right. phone. Right. And so the headphone record, I think now is the time that should come back. I think you're right. Well, you know, I don't have kids, but I'm always hearing from my friends that have kids. And at my age, they're, for the most part, adult kids. Uh, they don't listen to albums. They just call out, you know, Alexa, play fucking scloobity doobity bop or whatever. <laughs> uh but it's funny, my dad in the 70s had a big, like, Pioneer and Kenwood and all the, you know, reel-to-reel -reel stuff. hi-fis, yeah. Yeah, like, ordering his needles from Germany and all that crap. And, you know, um, I, we always used to joke that the audiophile is dead. And, and, you know, the first iteration of portable music was the Walkman. Yep. It was a cassette system. It was not unlike what people are doing now. Uh, get your headphones and all that stuff. So... You know, with mixtapes as well, right? You obviously like so we were doing that. your favorite you know, songs almost forty years ago. By you know eighty one or two, you know my most of my pals, we all had those, and and uh, you know it's just still kind of the same thing, just more technologically advanced, better sound quality. But the the uh, the thing is that you know it's not an audiophile medium. Yes, the sound is getting better, but for the most part, we were skateboarding down the street. You're not exactly. It's not high fidelity yeah. that you're concerned about it's <laughs> portability and and you know when you're young especially you're more forgiving about a loss in sonics and dynamics and 
half of the time people are listening to music, me included, is in my car when I'm, you know, driving around all the ambient noise. So rarely am I listening to music under those kind of like high tech, high scrutiny, high fidelity and conditions. solitary yeah, yeah. confinement space. I, I don't think very many people do no. anymore. The world's too busy and constantly distracted and on the go, isn't it now? Yeah. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, what about the gimmies? What's your history and timeline with that project? That goes back for me, well, my first... Well, here's an interesting backstory. Listen, pre-gimmies, when uh, when my little brother was still living in Los Angeles, uh, and we were living with Bill Armstrong, who runs Side One Dummy Records, who signed Flogging Molly originally. Uh, he's one of my best friends growing up. We still talk on the phone all the time. Uh, Chris, Bill, and I had a band together, uh, briefly including Josh Freeze in Los Angeles in the early, early uh, 90s. But I go back to 1980, 81 with Bill Armstrong. Um, we had a joke idea that never came to fruition. It was going to be a band called Clown Fight. And the point of the That's band... That's a great band name. We were going to dress as clowns, get as drunk as we could, and play <laughs> punk rock covers of 80s pop songs. That was the, the, the idea. I went so far as to going out and buying a clown suit for myself giant blue shoes the you know red nose i bought everyone else that was going to be in the band a red clown nose but that was as far as i was going to go they were going to have to go get their own clown suits you interpret your own individual right. looks now it never got off the ground it was just one of those drunken conversations that we just held on to that we would do and then when my brother moved up north to originally just get a job at fat records and stay up there i was originally going to move up there with him we were going to maybe do a side project with Joey Cape from, from Lagwagon, who's an old friend of mine for years. I played in bands with Joey prior to Lagwagon, like Chemical and stuff like that. Um, I, Joey's older brother, shredding guitarist TJ, still a shredding guitarist and a sweet dude. But two weeks before the move, I backed out because I have never been good at adulting. 
uh, even though I'm older now, I'm still a 16 year old in terms of my <laughs> ability to, to, you know, behave like a proper adult. And, and I knew I was never going to get a job and I would probably wind up dead and broke if I went up there. Chris already had an intern job at fat lined up. Um, so I just told him, man, I'm staying in LA, which I did, uh, which ultimately worked out cause I wound up joining face to face. But not long after Chris goes up there, they create this band where they dress in costumes, get as drunk as they can and play cover songs of other songs. And it wasn't specifically 80s. And even though I know they didn't rip the idea off, I always felt like I kind of have a prehistory to the concept anyway. So, you know, and I was always uh, and I was surprised they made a first record. I thought it was just going to be a local gag that they would do until they their livers gave out. And. And then uh, they made a second record, a third record. And then by the 2003 Warp Tour, Chris had to leave for some reason. And they roped dudes from other bands to come up and play songs. I got up and played two songs. So that was my first introduction. But the next year, 2004, my little bro, uh, Chris, called me up and asked, hey, how would you feel about doing a two-week tour uh, filling in with the Gimmies? I think he was saying, you know, some of the guys that get filling in, they covet the gig they want to try and you know be the guy on the records and all that stuff so for me i was i have no such aspirations and and so i was you know, yeah i'll jump in and i'll cover it and i'm not out to steal your gig you're my brother and it's your gig you know it always has been always will be in my mind so it's it's ironic that almost 15 years later i'm still doing the still gig. filling in <laughs> i think i was filling in for brian baker of bad religion and but you know the interesting thing is i you know I was instrumental in teaching my little brother how to play guitar. So I'm, I know that there's a crossover in some of the style and whatnot. So I could pick that shit up real quick. And, and I think I was maybe the first guy in a handful of dudes that was playing the songs correctly. Yeah. And which they liked. Plus from a distance, everyone thought they were seeing Chris just from the family <laughs> resemblance. And no matter how many times I'd say it's me, I'm Scott, or even they announced me as Scott. People are like, Chris, Chris, Chris. So they probably got what they wanted, that the fill-in was covering the spot, playing the parts correctly, and looked enough like the real dude <laughs> that they didn't have to worry about it. So the they dream just kept, standing. Yeah, you know, I didn't, uh, I never said, hey, I want to count me in or anything. They just kept calling, and I just kept doing it. And I've known some of the guys forever. Like Joey, I've known almost 40 years, you know, and and uh, I've known Fat Mike since about the time the uh, NoFX was recording White Trash, Two Heaps and a Bean. I think... So that's still to this day my favorite No Effects oh, album. I love I, that album. I was in the studio when uh, El Jefe was cutting his guitar solos for that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's why I think I like it is because it's obviously the first record with him. It's when a lot more of that comedy that we now know and love about them really kind of formulated. Right, right, and right. he obviously brought in his trumpet playing and just that. I think their sort of birth for me was that album as right, the band right, we know and love right. today. And it's interesting. A lot of bands... Uh, you know, there's the guy with the vision. A lot of punk rock bands, there's somebody that has the punk spirit and the punk vision, but those guys need really talented guys also. So they have to pull from a real diverse uh, pool of musicians to fix the flat, the proverbial flat. If your band needs a guy, you can't sit around finding some dude that just because he's got spiky hair or whatever, you need somebody that can cut it and cut it real quick. So El Jefe is one of those dudes. He didn't have a punk background. No, no. A, you know, and, and even like The Clash, Topper and you know, he's a jazz cat. He just figured he'd take the gig for a couple months till something better came along. You know, that's, and then, you know, punk history is made. And of course, having a, a real talent like that in your band just 
elevates your game, whatever you're doing. I always thought that was kind of an interesting thing. So many of the so-called punk bands of the 90s were ex-rock guys and shredder dudes that, you know, were no longer allowed by pop culture to do endless guitar solos. So they had to find some other way to keep playing. Uh, when Chris goes up to work, in fact, is that how he then ends up in No Use for a Name? He and were you already interning. in Face to Face, or what was those no, kind of two times? No, he time actually lines? joined No Use for a Name before I was in Face to Face. I, I had a little bit of time after Chris and my last band dissolved in a sea of drug addictions and fistfights, and and uh, he went up there because he had that job. But so No Use needed a guy. Well, there's that Chris dude uh, that they were calling Jake Jackson because I guess there was already a Chris working there. So they dubbed him Jake Jackson, and and uh, he was only a month or two up there before he got tapped. And you know, my brother is is well known now as a wealth of talent on the guitar. And I know that didn't take but three seconds to be discovered once he was up there. Oh my God, this dude is incredible. Let's get him in on something. And so no you uh, no use for name needed a guy. He got the gig, and it's funny. The first time I actually saw them playing, they were in L.A. playing the play a place form formerly called the palace i don't know what it is anymore but i just came in off the street you know and uh my brother was up on stage they were setting their stuff up and he looks out and he sees me and he motions get over here so i come around the side he gets me up on the stage and he goes i don't have a tech will you tech for me so i i basically saw watched my first no use for a name gig with my, with my own brother in it, sitting on the side of the stage, tuning his guitars and handing him fresh ones every couple songs. Amazing. So, yeah, it was a cool vantage point uh, to see. He he was in the band, made a couple records, and then uh, you know blessed their hearts and you know fantastic. I actually filled in for Chris's replacement, Dave Nazzy, on a on a month long tour playing lead guitar using one of my brother Chris's guitars with No Use for a Name. But uh, whatever people want to say about it being a, a chump move or a sellout move, I couldn't disagree more. I think my brother's talents have been put more to use in the Foo Fighters than, than No Use for Name. And there was a whole lot of that towing the line in, in the 90s where people you know, were almost afraid to stretch out for fear that they were going too far. And you know, I've, I've always been well aware of what he's capable of. So I felt like, well, it's a cool band. Tony writes cool songs. But I always felt my brother could do more. And so I'm glad to see that, you know, for a, a number of reasons that he uh, landed another gig and continues to stretch his wings and do other music. So I think it's that almost me. like self-hatred from within the punk police, isn't it? Right, right. That success is somehow meant to be the enemy. Right. Well, and it's you funny. shouldn't strive for more. You should be eating out of a garbage can. And When he joined the band money. at first, I was playing a face-to-face -face gig. And I remember... Uh, we were walking on stage and a voice in the crowd yelled, your brother's a sellout. And I knew damn well they were talking to me instead of anyone else. And I didn't get into a confrontation about it because you just can't win with that kind of person. But I just remember in my mind thinking, you have no idea how much I disagree with you, sir. But I'm not going to get into it now. I've got my own gig to play. But no, you're wrong. End of story. Do you remember the day when you heard the news and yes, how because did that news get delivered? It got delivered because uh, once again, our original uh, guitarist, Chad Yarrow, he was always a bit difficult relying on to make tours. You know, he was quitting the band every other Thursday, it seemed. 
And so we were constantly faced with the threat of like a day or two before a tour, him pulling out. And I remember we had a desperate situation going where we had a tour coming up and Chad was pulling his usual, I'm out, fuck this business. And I'm not meaning this to slag him because we have, there's so many differences between us, but I love him so much. He's one, he, I consider him a lifetime family friend. You know, he, he will always be my dear, dear brother, Chad. Uh, but he was a difficult little fucker back in those days. And he pulled out of a tour again. And I honestly, I was just looking to fix a flat temporarily. I wasn't asking Chris to, to join our band or anything, you know, unless he wanted to, Hey, open for that. But uh, I called him up and I was like, hey, you know, we have this thing. If you're free and you feel like doing it, love to have you come out. And he goes, actually, I'm about to drive. He was living up in San Francisco at the time. He goes, I'm driving down to L.A. to audition for the Foo Fighters, but please don't tell anyone. I think, you know, he just didn't want it to get out there in case, you know, it didn't happen or whatever. I you know, just protecting himself a little bit. Uh, and I was like, no way, unbelievable. And so maybe a day later, he calls me up with the good slash bad news. Well, the good news is I got the gig. Bad news is you got to figure your own problems out. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember what we did. I think we might have toured as a three-piece or tricked Chad back in for a few more shows because <laughs> that's how we always had to do it. Have our manager offer him more money or whatever. All right. So uh, I was nothing but happy for him, you know, not to spill too much of his personal life, but, you know, things weren't great at that time with no use for names career. He was, my brother was delivering pizzas between tours and, and worrying about where his life was headed. He was confiding in me that he was interested in, you know, going to business school and moving in back in with our dad and, you know, to facilitate this. So for me, uh, landing that gig was a godsend, you know, for, for him. And, and, uh, and I've, no, I've only ever been for it, you know, uh, and, and the rest of the dudes are great. I, I would never profess to know them well, but they've always, you know, the, the relations of band members is always a touchy thing in any band because, you know, you, you're almost forced to be polite because you don't want to piss off or alienate your your fellow band members, but sometimes these people can be absolute fucking nightmares. Now, obviously, I've never been on the level they are uh, professionally and career-wise, but I am a musician, and I do spend my life in bands, and I'm well aware of protocol and behavior and, and what, you know, the do's and don'ts of how to act, and I would never go in their room and kick their shit over and start punching people or anything like that. But I know it's a, it's a rough thing. They've only ever been really kind and gracious to me and i'm very thankful for that i almost never see them but it's cool nice nice dudes i guess the reason or other than his talent one of the main reasons why he probably got the gig is because he did come from a punk rock background yes and as much as people bag on the foo fighters and they are an arena rock band right. they're obviously very much in touch with those roots listen people tend to forget i didn't see these tours but one of my best <coughs> friends saw one of the earliest tours when i guess the foos were opening for mike watt you know, they're driving around in, in a van. They're setting up their own gear. They're, uh, you know, Dave's barely saying two words to the crowd. They're playing Van Halen covers or whatever. They had to fight their way back to that. Now, granted, yes, they had the vapor trail of public sympathy after the, 
the death of Kurt Cobain on their side. And he, but he, you know, it takes more than that to continue. It takes having talent, perseverance, charisma, and motherfucking charm, you know, and, and, and Grohl's got that in spades. And, and he was able to uh, parlay that into a huge career. And I see nothing wrong with that at all. You know, I always say, I say the same thing about Kiss. Listen, I loved Kiss, but my era of Kiss is like 70, uh, 74 or 75 Juice, 77, all that shit. Yeah. Fantastic. Cold Jim, Black Diamond. And I Cold. say, you know, the novelty of, of explosions and, and uh, kabuki makeup would wear thin if they didn't have the tunes to back it. And I think they have the tunes to back it. So, yeah. Early kiss. Absolutely. fucking lately yeah. What was your sort of uh, dance with the major label kind of business world? Because the mid-90s, I think, was the time when... A lot of those big labels wanted a piece of the punk pie, didn't they? Off well, the back of Nevermind and Dookie. And you know, here's the thing. I never paid attention to any of that shit. I grew up not giving a fuck how old people were, whether they were any certain ethnicity or what sex they were. Never cared whatsoever what label a person was on. I never thought of that shit. I only saw the records, heard the music, and kind of you know concerned myself with that. There's this whole other element to fandom that, utterly eluded me and i was so well entrenched in how i viewed the world and and music that by the time it even dawned on me that that was a thing i thought those people were fucking morons i'm sorry but if you only listen to bands from a certain label or of one particular genre to me you're trying too hard absolutely you're forcing it and it's it seems disingenuous and intellectually suspect to a degree um never cared never knew and oddly enough were, I was were well you, aware were you face guys face. courted and were you guys mistreated? Yes. Or, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, uh, before I was even in the band, I was well aware of some of the controversies surrounding Face to Face. They signed to Victory, I think it was, which was a subsidiary of maybe A&M, which, you know, it, it's not a major. It was a mid-level. It wasn't a DIY. It wasn't the big label. Yeah. It was sort of an intermittent zone, which they still got a, a untold amounts of shit about. You know, the irony is that I was working as a shipping receiving clerk when I got the call to audition for them, and I ignored it. I had seen them live three, four times. I figured, you know, if they need a bass player, they've got problems, and if they got problems, I don't want to be a part of it. Uh, even though I'm hearing their song Disconnect on the radio ten times a day. That I song just, was huge at that time, at right? That, it was a regional hit in L.A. It really never broke worldwide. No. No, Wasn't it really. in a couple of movies and stuff? Sure, though? sure, sure. Tank Girl or something. Right, right. Um, but... Uh, so I joined a band. At, I joined them at the end of the Big Choice cycle. I joined in late 95. And we start working on the tunes for what would be the self-titled album. Trevor had it mostly written. And at one point, I don't really, you know, because I was utterly, you know, pretty oblivious to the business being the new guy. More than anything, I'm just trying to learn the tunes and ingratiate myself with these dudes that I'm just now getting to know. You know, the original guys rob chad and and trevor uh i had nothing to do with the business you know they didn't let some new guy come in and start ha getting involved at all you know and, and i wouldn't have known anyway because i've just always been a little bit stupid when it comes to how all that works but i do remember at some point blissfully ignorant yeah, yeah. thank you <laughs> I, I do remember at one point something came up about how we're now free agents uh victory dropped the band or collapsed or something happened where we were no longer held to that and we even went so far for you know we were just talking like wow what label would we like to go to 
honestly, I was more listening to the conversation than contributing to it because I didn't have a, an idea what would be the right thing to do. But um, we went so far as, to, you know, ironically, somebody said, as long as it's not A&M, and we even had one rehearsal where we wrote a song, We Won't Sign with A&M. And we were singing <laughs> that over and over. And ironically enough, we found out later, we didn't get to choose our label. We got absorbed into A&M Records. So they just kind of accepted or took the contract or some fucking thing. I, I may have that completely wrong, but that's kind of what my memory of it was. And, you know, it was just, it was a lot of learning. I was pretty adult to be learning these lessons. I was already, well, I was 29 when I joined the band, which by some estimates was you know, long in the tooth to be joining a punk band. I only think, you know, I'm enjoying music, so I didn't really care that much about yeah, yeah. what, you know, how that worked out. But I was probably by the time we were off A&M, like 30, 31 or whatever, and, or on A&M and stuff. And, you know, I remember the hard lesson of discovering that we're being farmed out to play radio shows to earn Dishwalla spins. You know, we, it's always like, if you don't play these shows, they won't play your single, but I learned pretty quickly, they're not going to play it anyway. And that's all that like politicizing in the music business. It's all that shit that I really didn't know at the time, but I only just event, you know, I eventually just kind of figured we jump through hoops for these fuckers and they don't play our stuff anyway. So I got really kind of combative about it. Like, fuck them. Fuck that. No, I don't, I don't, I won't do their show, you know, fuck that. And so I think a lot of times my, steadfast kind of stance on things alienated me from the business side and Trevor and Rich had a tendency to kind of just run with their own agenda and not even inform me because I they didn't want to have to contend with what my opinion on things was going to be they just sidestepped it so I would just get a, a you know a, a, you know an email we're doing this we're doing that oh, okay whatever I tended to not disagree since I wasn't calling the shots anyway I did, you know, book the tours, I go play them. That's kind of how it usually goes. And and nowadays, yeah, I'll say yes or no to stuff, but you know, we're always a little bit in that that boat. I I benefit from having other people put together a lot of the business side of things. I have you managed to maintain a certain enjoyment level and yes, kept your appreciation? And that's just of, what I was getting to. So thank you for asking. It stayed pure. Listen, I did try to get involved. I tried to attend meetings, and everyone's always it's so important that you, you know, uh, know what's happening with your career and that you're on top of every little thing. But quite frankly, I found it made me a miserable asshole about the whole fucking thing. And I did. I I didn't start playing music to get girls. I started because music moved my soul. I didn't do it to be an asshole to other people. If your band is doing well, that's fucking great. I don't have a pro I'm not in competition with you. Whether you're the small band, the medium band, or the big band, I'm just here to do music, man. I'm not your enemy or any of that shit. You know, I just, to me, when you've gotten to that point, you've just fucking, you've been poisoned. Yeah. And I honestly did. I just decided, fuck this, I'm out. Uh, you guys can steer this ship any way you want. I'm going to handle what I handle best. I'm going to try and write and produce and perform uh, to the best of my abilities with as much love and passion for what I do. And, and so when I go to my grave, I know that I left a lot of blood, sweat and good tears on that stage, you know, uh, because so many people are reaching for the proverbial brass ring in this business and still don't get it. And they spend their whole life, uh, you know, kind of like blowing off what they really wanted to do 
to succeed and they still don't succeed. So at and the very find least happiness either. Right. So, you know, I'm going to have a, I'm going to, life is short and it moves real quick. Trust me. You know, I, I can't even believe that I'm here now. It, it feels, sometimes it feels like I've been alive for a thousand years <laughs> and sometimes it feels like it's just been last week that, you know, I've picked up a base and, and, uh, and I'm still trying kind of honoring the, the desires of the 16 year old me. And I guess I kind of get a lot of that out in, in, well, no one's holding me back in face to face. Uh, it's just that I have been partially responsible for pissing people off with my esoteric songwriting style. Uh, Ignorance is bliss uh, was the first album that I was a significant writer on. Now that was Trevor and I, we were both kind of really pushing the limits on that one. Um, but I felt a little guilty at first when everyone hated it so fucking much. It's kind of a cult classic to a, a percentage of our fan base, but it did at the time absolutely chop our fan base off by about two thirds uh, because it wasn't in step with the, with the movement at the time and alienated everyone, our fan base, our label, our management, uh, radio. They just didn't understand. They thought God is a man was a misogynistic song which is really about, you know, religion is a man-made creation. They just didn't get what the lyrics were about. And just immediately they wouldn't play it because they figured it was just some macho thing about God is a dude, got a big swinging dick and all that <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also again on the Three Chords and a Half Truth, I was a primary songwriter of the music on that album. And for me, it was more paying homage to the 70s style punk that I came up on. But once again, most of the people that are aware of this band that's not their cup of tea to begin with. So that was another dark horse. And uh, so I've kicked our fan base in the teeth a few times. So I try to keep my weirder shit on my side projects and my more straight ahead stuff, which I'm not writing under duress because I, I love this band and I love writing for this band as well. It's just hard to divvy some stuff up periodically. I'll write something not for this band, but Trevor will insist we use it. And same with Trevor. He's written things where he almost didn't want to play it for me. And then I heard it and I said, we are doing that in this band. So, you know, it, it, there's a, a love of what we do and a camaraderie to, to it. I, I, I enjoy working together and uh, being partners in this thing. But then, of course, I also love just sort of taking the reins and doing whatever the hell I want on my side project. And what about Dennis as well? What a great energy he is. Yes, I've actually known Dennis longer than I've known Trevor. I've known, I first met Dennis in the early 90s. Uh, and he was in the Poor Boys, I believe, at that point. It was a local band. They they, had, they were kind of having a hot moment. And I've always loved Dennis. I think he's an immense talent. He's immensely gifted as a songwriter, singer, and guitarist. And it's almost that his talents are kind of being uh, wasted in this group. And I'm just glad he's here. Because uh, like I said, Chad is family. But I've known Dennis longer than Chad. So having him in the band it never felt like we you know, had to get some new dude and get to know you. It's still family. And uh, the reality is he's 80 times the guitarist Chad is. And, and I don't mean that disparagingly because, like I said, I love Chad to death. But having Dennis in the band, there's so much horsepower under that hood. It's, we can barely contain it. Just a cool energy as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, Bubba. What's up, Bubba's? <laughs> Doing the Bubba's. Uh, Scott, I think that is about time you yeah, need to head inside yeah. and jam out some hot for teacher, dude. Cool. 
I'm sorry to talk over you so much, but no, I'm, no, I'm a jabberjaw, dude. Uh, how I am. The floor is yours. When the guest is on, it's their time to talk, and uh, cool. I really enjoyed that. Cool. And thanks for giving up your My time, pleasure, dude. And thanks man. for Thank having you. me out on this Absolutely. run with you. Absolutely. Appreciate it. And when will I see you again? What's going to happen? I have no idea. You know, we do this. We have the three uh, post-Christmas acoustic shows coming up at Marty's on Newport in Tustin. And... Uh, and after that, you know, there's a lot of dates cooking up for either the acoustic because, you know, face to face, we're technically our latest album is Hold Fast Acoustic Sessions. We did acoustic renditions of our songs from throughout our career. I think it came out fantastic. So we're really enjoying going out and playing those gigs. Uh, very different than the full uh, punk rock set. And uh, Good songs are good songs, though, right? Great, and I think once and you break it down. It's interesting. The... Even my wife's like, wow, I can I really understand the lyrics. And these songs are fantastic. Not that she didn't like them before, but. That's always kind of nice yeah, to hear. Yeah, yeah. Oh, these are really fucking good songs. <laughs> so yeah, I think that the change in, in stylistic approach has is actually affording people the opportunity to see that even those early shitty sounding records had some really good stuff on it. And there's a reason why people were into this band then. So So there's gonna be hopefully yeah. more shows in that yes, format. Yes, yes, yes. We're uh I, I just love that sort of like how the Bronx has Mariachi Al Bronx. The I best. think that it's opened us up. To having kind of two different versions of our band you know if we could really make the acoustic uh, acoustic things stick um i i really enjoy doing it plus i play uh finger style and not with a pick which i feel is uh you know it it honors kind of like the traditionalist in me as a bass player right on. yeah so and your brother's got a country album out right yes coming out. i don't know the name of it he's got two or three of them and and uh, he's always out at work doing the chris shiflett thing you know originally he had a um uh, Jackson United, which I played bass on both yeah, of yeah, those yeah. records. Then he had Chris Shiflett and the Dead Peasants. And then I think he snipped off the Dead Peasants and he just goes out as Chris Shiflett, does like solo acoustic stuff now. So Would you ever do that? Would you ever go out solo? No, on no, an no. I, I admire the hell out of all the Chris Shifflets and Joey Capes that'll take an acoustic guitar and just go out in front of people. But I've always been terrified of rejection. And, and, and in all honesty, my health is always a bit too fragile. Uh, I lose my voice readily. I could never book a tour and be certain that I'd have a voice from night after night. And I'm insecure. I'm an insecure singer. You can tell. You hear my records. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, dim the lights, belt back some scotch and throw a performance down. But I, I don't know how I could do it with a bunch of people staring at me, judging, watching. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's uh, it's possible. People keep goading me on when are you going to do a live viva death thing and for years i said i never would but now i'm actually starting to think i might slap together a live version and just do a live show record it and do a, a live album of kind of like a best of the four albums or whatever you know it sounds like it would be fun but there's a there's an exposure and a, and a intimacy to just you know one person one acoustic guitar that quite frankly to be perfectly honest i don't know that i have the courage to take on well, as you say, life is short, though, I know. and you only get one shot. So I've maybe, got some of that material. Maybe it's you'll just, feel different down right, the line. It, it's just on cassettes in a drawer somewhere at my house. Yeah, sad Scott. <laughs> I, you know, my voice can't imagine tends to be more of like an Elliot Smith thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, my, yeah. I don't. I've never been a power singer. I always, and in fact, similar to what he did, I I never felt comfortable singing in my apartments with my neighbors all around me. I felt insecure, and so my voice kind of got into a wispy, whispery kind of thing. And so my stuff's real quiet. Yeah. We'll see how that works out. The polar opposite to your bass playing. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. In this band, and, at least. And what I found is oftentimes, <laughs> yeah. 
guys that aren't great singers are amazing players like Uli John Roth. Bless you, mate. I'm so sorry. I had to throw you under the bus, but <laughs> you cannot sing. And at least you know it now and don't try it anymore. But so his guitar playing is just immense. And, you know, oftentimes great singers are a bit rudimentary on guitar because they're able to express themselves well with their vocal styling. I'm as strong a player I am because something has to do that singing and it's not going to be my voice. Yeah. Scott, right on, dude. Right Thanks on. again, dude. Thank you. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.